Let's open our Bibles this time to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And let us consider a couple stages of an adoption and what we would call phases of salvation in the Bible as it applies to our adoption. This morning the Lord convicted me and told me to tell you that it is not all the love of God our Father toward us that is part of our adoption, but the love of Jesus Christ our Savior, our older brother, is an important part as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul did pray that God would fill them with might in their inner man, it was to know the dimensions of Jesus Christ's love for his brethren, and by knowing that, we are filled with all the fullness of God. And I tried to describe to you what if a son, the only son of his father, the pride and joy of his father, had to share the inheritance with a rebel enemy pulled out of an orphanage and adopted by his father. He had known for a good while that the inheritance was altogether his, and then an adoption is made and the inheritance is split by putting two people on the will. The pride and joy in the adopted son. I want to add an element to that that my brother mentioned to me at break time, and that is that not only did Jesus Christ have to share his inheritance with an adopted band of brothers, he had to lay down his life to get them written on the will. Now, when we start to add elements like this together, it goes beyond our mental capacity of grasping what He has done. This is our Savior. You wouldn't do it, and neither would I do it. You would have called 12 legions of angels to have gotten yourself out of the mess that you were in in the Garden of Gethsemane, which He could have easily gotten Himself out of. But He chose to do the Father's will and to share His inheritance with all of us And he laid down his life. He died. He was brutalized before he got to die in order to get us into his Father's will. Praise the God of heaven. That is our Savior. And if it doesn't move you, you have a spiritual problem yourself. Not with the truth of the message of this gospel. But you're too carnally minded. You're too distracted. Confess your sins. Purge your mind. Cast out every thought and every imagination that is rising up against knowledge like this, you have never been loved, never will be loved in this world like you are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Don't look for it. You that are unmarried or you that are married, you'll never find it. No one is ever going to love you like the God of heaven has loved you and His Son Jesus Christ has loved you. Let us bask in that love and let us go out and live for Him because of that love for us. We're in Romans chapter 9 because we want to understand that this adoption process took place or began in eternity. Let's just consider two phases. A father on earth, before he adopts, is going to go through the planning process. Do I really want to adopt a child? The nature is going to be different from mine. Where do I want to get the child from? What is it going to cost? How many children do I want to have? Is my home large enough for them? All this planning needs to take place before a man does an adoption. It's the planning phase, what we would call the eternal phase of salvation. Then there's the legal phase, which is the legal process that a man has to go through to satisfy the requirements of our country in order to adopt another child that was born to different parents has a different name, has a, has a birth certificate that needs to be transferred to a new father so that he has a new name and he belongs to a new father legally. The old parents cannot reclaim him and the new father can treat him like his own flesh and blood. Right. That's the legal phase. It requires payments to the orphanage. It requires payments to the state. It requires lawyers to represent your case to make sure that everything is satisfied in order for the transaction to take place. Let's consider those two, because hopefully the Lord's given us enough time for them. In Romans chapter 9, we start out with verses that I read to you, quoted to you in the first service, in verses in verse 15. 
No, I'll read you more. Now, we're going to preach through this chapter in a detailed fashion as, as we have been in just a little while. Let's start at verse 10. And not only this, that is Sarah giving birth when she was past age. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So there's one man, one father, one wife. This is Isaac and Rebekah, but there's going to be two children. Verse 11 is in parentheses. For the children, that is Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. When God looked into the orphanage of Rebekah's womb, he saw two twins struggling there. And he told Rebekah, I've chosen the younger one over the older one. I have loved Jacob. I have hated Esau. The natural response would be to think that there's unrighteousness with God to make a choice like that. But what does the Bible say? God forbid. There is no unrighteousness in that kind of a choice. See, our flesh and the world looks at the fact that God hated Esau as not being fair. If your mind and your heart are enlightened with the Scriptures and with the Spirit of God, the only lack of fairness is God loving Jacob. It's not hating Esau. He ought to hate all of us. You would if you were God. That's the unfairness because it's grace. Grace isn't fair. Grace is merciful. Grace is kind. Grace is forgiving. That's the only unfair part of it. But but then after we say, God forbid that there's any unrighteousness in such a choice, we have verse 15. For he saith to Moses, this is another quotation from Scripture, in addition to verse 12, And 13, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's choice to adopt and those whom God chose to adopt are according to His own will, mercy, and compassion. His will is stated four times in one verse. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There is no other choice in the matter of an adoption. A father makes the choice to choose a child to be his adopted son. Children don't make the choice. Preachers don't make the choice. Orphanage workers can't make the choice. A father has to be willing. And when did God our Father become willing? In eternity. He chose to adopt children. We come to verses, we come to verse 21 of the same chapter. As we think about him looking at the orphanage, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Those are the children of disobedience and the children of wrath and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And when did he afore prepare us unto glory? Verse 22, are the children of the devil. They are the children of disobedience and the children of wrath. Verse 23, the children of God. The righteous. And when did he afore prepare them? It had to be some time before this. It had to be some time before the writing of Romans 9. It's in eternity. When God made a choice that he would arrange the creation of man, and out of that lump which would fall 
in rebellion and wickedness against him, he would make some vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor. He would adopt some to be his children, and he would pass by others and leave them to the Father which they had chosen. We chose in the Garden of Eden. That Father approached us and say, how would you like me to be your Father instead of God being your Father? God, your Father's lied to you. I want to tell you the truth about that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we chose the devil as our father. And we choose the devil as our father every day in our flesh. But thanks be to God, he has made from that same lump of clay of humanity some children of honor, vessels of honor, vessels of mercy. And this is our adoption. This is where it began. This is where it originated. Now look back at Romans 8. Romans 8. Predestination. Our sign in the front of our building that anyone passing down this road can see says that we are the church of Greenville, that we're Baptistic, we're Baptist, and we're predestinarian. Some are so unfamiliar with the word that they've driven by that sign, and I'm talking about some religiously aware people, and thought that it said Baptist, Presbyterian. We've had people come in here thinking that we were Baptist Presbyterians. Now, I have a hard time reconciling those two, sort of like looking at grape nuts and trying to figure out whether they're grapes or nuts. Or or Christian scientists, whether they're Christians or scientists, because they're really neither. But we call ourselves predestinarians and we tell it to the whole world. That's because the word predestination is in the Bible four times. It's not preached in very many pulpits anymore. Because what I just read to you from Romans 9 is not politically correct. It is not religiously correct. It is not socially correct. Two twins in a mother's womb each have an equal right to everything in life. But not according to God. We forfeited the rights of ourselves and our children in the Garden of Eden. And it's God who has the right to grant privileges to whom He will. Predestination. Is it in the Bible? I read to you, beginning at verse 28 of Romans 8. They know the 28th verse so well, but it's a pity and a shame that they don't know the verses that follow it as well. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Who are these people that love God? To them who are the called according to His purpose. Remember, it was His calling over there in Romans chapter 9 and verse 11 for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, but according to the purpose of God. Purpose of God, purpose of God, that election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. We then have the same type of terminology, the same terminology in this 28th verse, that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. These are Jacob's of the world. These are Jacob and his spiritual descendants. Four. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Here are two of the four occurrences of the word predestinate in our New Testaments. And they are describing adoption. They are describing that God chose to determine the destiny beforehand of certain children of Adam that would be brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would not be an only child. God did not want a family with an only child, even though that only child was the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He wanted him to have a family of brothers. Though he would be the firstborn, though he would get the preeminence, though we would give him all the glory, though he'd be the one wearing the 
I don't want to use a foolish example or illustration. I want to maintain sobriety about this example. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. He'd be the oldest. He'd be our older brother. He'd be the chief brother. But we would all be brothers with him. And it's based on predestination. And it's based on God's calling. And it's based on God's purpose. Which is right there in those verses. It is God's purpose. It is not the purpose of a missionary effort to create children that will be brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a sinner's purpose that he wants to be a child of God. The Lord never saw any such person in the whole family of Adam. He looked down from heaven upon the children of men as we looked at in Psalm 14, but there were none that sought after him. There were none that understood they needed an adoption. There were none that understood this God could solve all their problems of time and eternity. He had to make the choice, and he did make the choice. It's his purpose, not our purpose. It's his purpose, and he foreknew us. That foreknowledge is not of what you would do. If you make it the foreknowledge of what you would do, then you consign everyone to hell, and there is no adoption, period. Because when God looked down upon men, he did not see anyone seeking him, understanding, or doing righteousness, or doing good. No, not one. Not one. So if you make that the foreknowledge of man's obedience, you consign us all to hell. When the Bible says what God foreknew about us is that we all together went out of the way. We are all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. But is there another way in which He foreknew us? Yes. He knew us beforehand in affection because He chose to set His love on us before the world began. Does Ephesians 1 tell us that? According as He hath chosen us in Him, that is in Christ Jesus, before the world began, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He chose to love us. He's always chosen to love. No one's ever deserved love and no one has ever loved Him first. We love Him because He first loved us. He set His love upon Israel. Not because they were loving, nor because they were lovable, but He set His love upon them because He loved them. Because I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And that is the foreknowledge. It's the foreknowledge of loving them beforehand, and it is the foreknowledge of all He was going to do on their behalf to bring about their adoption. There's predestination. In verse 29, it's to be conformed to the image of His Son. Jesus is the perfect Son. The perfect Son of God. And God has predestinated to make some of us just like His perfect Son. Though He will be the firstborn, we will be conformed to that image. So that John, who read Romans, could write 1 John 3, 2 and say, but we know that When He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Because we're going to be conformed to His image. We shall see Him as He is. And then verse 30 just starts the golden chain of God's salvation. For whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. We understand that word called in this context is to be our appointment to eternal life because it comes before justification. It can't not be the call of regeneration. It can't be the call of the gospel because this is a logical chain progressing from God's first love set upon us to our glorification at the end. And so we see His appointment of us personally after predestinating our destiny. In Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is the word predestination. It means to determine the destiny beforehand, and hardly anyone preaches it. Yet it's in the Bible, and it's the basis for our adoption, because this is about sonship right here. This is sonship. That he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's all the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. 
I just quoted the fourth verse, but let's look over there at Ephesians chapter 1 and see what the Bible tells us there. Remember, these are verses you know well. These are verses our children are learning. In fact, our Bible quiz team is memorizing this book. But we want to look at these verses in the light of adoption. How do they play into adoption? How do they fit the Bible doctrine of adoption? Right now, we are going to the fact that God made a choice that He wanted to have children out of the human family. Every man has to make a choice. I want to get some children. And I'm willing to adopt them. God made a choice I want to have some children that I can show all my riches to in grace and possessions, that I can give an inheritance to, to display my goodness, my glory, my grace to the universe. And I will adopt out of the human family, and I will pass over the fallen angels. We're reading about his choice. In Ephesians 1, We are told in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Would that include adoption? All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ would include adoption. Well, how did He do this great blessing upon us? Verse 4, According, this is how it was done, as He hath chosen us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There might be one father and one mother that have twins struggling in her womb. But I will choose Jacob. I will pass over Esau. I will. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. And you say, how could he make the choice? It was his good pleasure to make that choice. I remind you that if he was fair, he would have sent us all to hell. Right. I resent... Anyone who says election is not fair because God saves some. And not all. They look at those who aren't saved as if they deserve salvation and God is not fair because He didn't save them. We should look at the ones that God did save and say God isn't fair because if He was fair, He would have sent them all to hell. Therefore, He's gracious. Therefore, He's merciful. Therefore, He's abundant in loving kindness and goodness that He would save any. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. To the praise of the glory of His grace. And that's what we ought to do because of today's theme. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. He has made us acceptable children. You know, that's moving into the legal phase of our adoption right there for us to become acceptable to God as fit children to adopt and be in the family of God. But we are looking at the planning phase. We are looking at the fact that God made this choice before the world began in eternity past. The fourth occurrence of the word predestination is also right here in Ephesians 1. It's in verse 11. In whom also, not only have we been adopted as children, what did Romans 8.17 say? Did Romans 8.17 say, and if children, then heirs? Same thing here. Same author, Holy Spirit. Same writer, our beloved brother Paul. Verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. We were predestinated to more than just adoption in verse 5. We were predestinated to an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Now that's kind of redundant, isn't it? To have those words in verses 5 and 6 and here again in verse 11? Or does God want you to know that your adoption was based on predestination according to the good pleasure of His will and your inheritance, which is a result of adoption, is based on the good pleasure of His own will who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. 
He does not consult your will. He does not consult any will. It is not the will of man nor the will of flesh that ever makes a child of God. It is the will of God. This is where we stand, and we don't care how few stand with us. We are going to stand with the Holy Spirit of God and the Apostle Paul on these doctrines. This is adoption. This is the planning phase of adoption. This is the eternal phase, as we call it. Those are the four references right there to predestination. And they all have to do with adoption and inheritance. Two in Romans 8, two in Ephesians 1. God's determined your destiny beforehand. You think you're going to alter it? If God's determined your destiny, if God be for us, who can be against us? Shall death separate you from that purpose of God? According to Romans 8. No. How about life? How about principalities, angels? They're more powerful than you. Can they interrupt God's predestinating purpose? Can anything separate you from the love of God your Father? Can anyone lay anything to your charge? Are there any legal claims left against you? Unanswered, unsatisfied by the law of God. That law is very demanding. Who fulfilled all the claims of that law against you? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We are so blessed with our adoption. We were predestined to be Christ's brethren, which would clearly make us God's son, wouldn't it? Since he is God's son. And it includes our eternal inheritance. I don't need to turn you to 2 Timothy 1.9, do I? That tells us that we are saved according to God's purpose. What word did I just use again? God's purpose. No adoption takes place without a father purposing to adopt. And that is true in the Bible. God purposed to adopt before Adam and Eve were in Eden. Isn't that amazing? God wasn't remedying a situation that got out of hand. Anybody who even thinks that is so foolish. God created a situation in which to manifest His great glory. And He's never done violence to the will of any creature except yours in saving you. He's never done violence to a creature like Adam and Eve by putting them in the Garden of Eden. They willingly chose to talk to the devil instead of demanding that God come and rescue them from him. He's never done violence to the will of a creature, except ours in saving us against our wills. Because there were none that understood nor sought after him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he saved us anyway according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 When was the Lord Jesus Christ set up to be our older brother and to share the inheritance with us by dying for us? 1 Peter 1.20 tells me this. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus came in our minds 2,000 years ago because we're living in the year 2011 after Christ. He came 2,000 years ago, but long before that, He had been foreordained before the foundation of the world to be our older brother, to lay down His life that we might receive the adoption of sons. Look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25. The Bible's filled with it. The Bible is a book from God to His children. The Bible describes the children of God by name from Genesis 6 to Revelation 21 and in concept in every page of Scripture. It's to the children of God. Matthew chapter 25. The sheep are going to be at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sheep were those given to Him by God to save. And the identity in Matthew 25 is their love of one another and their service to the least of His brethren. 
Does Jesus care for the least of His brethren? Every act of kindness done to the least of Jesus Christ's brethren, He will take recognition of in the great day of judgment. Should you ever feel lost in the family of God that you're the least of His brethren? No. He takes special recognition of you. And He tells the brethren in Romans chapter 12, Be not high-minded, but condescend to men of low estate. He looks after the least of the brethren of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 34. This is what He's going to say to the sheep. Verse 34, Then shall the King, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the eternal phase of God planning to adopt you. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world? He's been building something for you for a a long time. Do you know what He did in six days? What's He been doing since then? Before then? During then? After then? Now the Lord's using terminology to help us because you know that He could create an infinite heaven for you in less than a nanosecond of time. But look at the language He wants you to rest on and take comfort in. The language that He wants you to walk out of this room in a few minutes and face the world. You're a son of God and you have a place prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This world was overthrown by water. But there's a place that wasn't overthrown by water. It's still solidly established in heaven. It's a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, These are the goats on the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the workers of iniquity. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. What a difference out of the orphanage of humanity. Some into a kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Others into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's presumption and sacrilege to think that adoption is the choice of the rejected orphan choosing its father. This is a gospel that gives all the glory to God, all the humility to man, and all the power to grace. It's His will. Notice that it was according to His purpose and the good pleasure of His will. And He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, though it is stated in the first person there in Romans chapter 9, and it's stated that way in the book of Exodus from which it is quoted. If the choice or cooperation were left up to the children in this orphanage of humanity, we would choose the world and the father of lies. We would have rejected the God of heaven. The will or the faith of the child of the devil is not involved in becoming a child of God. The Bible says in John 1.13, which were born. Which were born. Now that twelfth verse, which is quoted so often, and it's only the first half of a sentence, but as many as received him, because he's describing history, because verse 11 said, he came unto his own, the Jewish nation, and his own received him not. But as many as received him... To them gave He power to become the sons of God. Now those are both past tense verbs so far. Even to them, even means, here is an example of what I'm talking about. Even to them that believe, present tense, on His name. Even to them that believe, present tense, on His name, which were born, past tense, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That means wherever it wants to. It does its own will. John 3, 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, 
and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The will or faith of the child of the devil is not involved in becoming a child of God. In an eternal sense, we have been the children of God since before the creation of the heaven and the earth. In the purpose and plan of God and in His covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we were chosen by name and put into Jesus Christ who was identified and a covenant was made with Him that in the fullness of time He would come and lay down His life for us. That was all accomplished in the purpose of God before the foundation of the world. When he looked at the children of men, there were none worthy of adoption. There were none wanting adoption. There were none working for adoption. They were all working to prove their enmity against the Creator of heaven. And that is true of us as well. Brethren, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you, when you read your Bibles, to see sonship, your sonship, Throughout its pages. We were just in Matthew 25. But there was a, should we call it a casual reference? A casual reference to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world? It's like a passing remark because it's not the main thought of that judgment day. But it's the destiny of everyone on his right hand. It's the destiny because they were pre destinated to it. Here's another example. Abigail would like to be adopted. She has a loving father right now doing exactly what he should do and exactly what the Lord does to us every time we need it. And no more. Praise His name. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is greater than men, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Here's where we have a definition of what calling is. It's to be chosen or appointed in other places. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. When God entered the orphanage of humanity, there were the intellectuals, there were the athletes, and there were the rich business tycoons. He looked into the orphanage of humanity and saw those three categories. The people who are something. The pretty people of the world. I don't want them. I want that ugly scumbag. I want that uncoordinated jerk. I want that ignorant idiot. Give them to me. God made choice of them, brethren. And look. Do you know what it says? Look around and see that this passage is true. So look around, and if you're thinking, well, I'm the exception in this audience, we don't know who you are because we can't see any exceptions. So you maybe need to tell us. You can have next Sunday Second Assembly to get up and tell us that you're the exception, and we'll remind you of a few things. I'll bring a mirror. Someone else will bring an IQ test. And we'll show you that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the mighty. And things which are nothing, in their opinion, to be something, in his opinion. The sons of God, the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adoption. It's everywhere. Look at who he adopted. He looked into the orphanage, and there's all these guys waving, showing off their high school letters. And the poor little geek with a half-inch thick quartz lenses on his face. The Lord says, come over here. I know you got hit by a war ball in the sixth grade and it smashed your glasses, cut your eye, and everybody laughed at you and they laugh at you in the shower. Never mind. Um, come here. I want you to be my son. Why? Why did he do it that way? He tells us. 
that no flesh should glory in His presence. So as we sit there in the library with our Father, and He opens to us His 66-book library, there's no glorying on anything that we've done. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. Look at James chapter 2. And I've altered my plans. James chapter 2. There is no adoption that takes place without a father going through a whole list of questions and thoughts and considerations and aspects and costs of an adoption to make sure that is what he wants to do. God went through that process in his eternal counsel, which we have read about. And he set his purpose on adopting us. This is the eternal phase of adoption. It is throughout the Bible. We had just used 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that told us if we look among ourselves, we can see that God hasn't chosen the rich and the famous. He's chosen the poor and the despised to be His children. He gets greater glory that way. Do you love to give Him greater glory because of that? I hope you do. James 2.5 tells us more. It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, in James 2.5, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He hath promised to them that love Him? Hasn't God made a choice in those that are the heirs of His kingdom to be the poor? See, it's not the poor choosing God to be the heirs of the kingdom. It's God choosing the poor to be the heirs of the kingdom. When was that kingdom constructed? Well, it started construction before the world began. But now Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. So there's still construction going on, brethren. It's got to be decent. Will you accept that, that it's probably as decent as the house you live in? It's a new heaven and a new earth. He could have told it to us in any choice of words. And He doesn't have to have time to construct. This is God we're speaking of. This is our Father. But He wants us to have this kind of terminology. But I want you to see in James 2.5, He's chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith. And so when you don't get respect, when you don't get respect, who cares? They didn't give God any respect either. And they didn't give the Lord Jesus Christ any respect. You know all that matters? That His predestinating purpose was set on me before the world began. In the eternal phase of adoption, I have been a child of God before my first parents required a sacrifice to have been paid to undo what they were going to do to try to damn me to an eternity in hell. God had already set His affection upon me in heaven, in eternity. And He was already starting to build a place for me. He knew my name, and He gave me by name in the book of life and to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is adoption. You've never been lost in an eternal sense. You've been lost in a legal sense until a price was paid for you. You've been lost in a vital sense because you have a corrupt nature by your first birth. But then as God takes care of each one of these stages that every man goes through to adopt, He does it better than any adoption the world has ever seen. He excels it as light excels darkness in showing the glory and splendor of His grace and His love to adopt us wicked sinners. And He's had His eyes on us and His purpose on us from the foundation of the world. The angels cannot comprehend it. His incredible grace and mercy. You're only a few pages away from 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 12, it is a long verse. I preached it to you recently as contextual matter in the sermon about past the time of your sojourning here in fear. Why is it called sojourning? Because you've been adopted. This is not our journey. What does Nissan say? Life is a journey. Enjoy the ride. Help me. Don't sit there and look at me like I'm an idiot. I feel like one right now. Is that a Nissan cliche? I've got people muttering that I'd never drive a Nissan. I didn't ask if you'd drive a Nissan. What did they say? 
Life is a journey. But you know what? We are sojourners here. And we don't enjoy our ride here like the ride we're going to have in heaven. We're sojourners because we've been adopted. This is not our home. We are pilgrims and strangers on earth because we have been adopted and have another address that we are moving to shortly. And it's the address of our Father. It's His home. It's His mansions that we are going to. So we're strangers and pilgrims here. And so it says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says about passing the time of your sojourning here in fear in the 17th verse. Which verse? It starts out with, and if ye call on the Father. And it says in verse 14, as obedient children. I want you to read your Bibles differently than you've ever read them before. I want you to see sonship on every page. This Bible is to the sons of God. It is to no one else. No one else can understand it. Everyone else hates it. They despise it. Love it. Love its every word. Love Psalm 119. I read to you verse 12. The prophets in verse 10, this salvation that we have obtained, the prophets inquired and searched diligently about this grace that should come to us. They searched what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. They had this urgent Spirit inside them putting things out on paper in Psalm 45, in the book of Isaiah, and the book of Malachi, they had the spirit of prophecy in them, but they didn't really know what was going to happen and what manner of time these things were going to happen. They just wrote down the prophecies God gave them. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us. That's Paul and his generation. Peter and his generation. But unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you, by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The spirit of the prophets was stirred up by the Holy Spirit to pronounce obscure, dark pictures of what was coming with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't clear. And they searched, what is this actually going to be? And Paul said, now there are men that get to preach the gospel to you, which is the glad tidings made clear of God's plan of adoption for the saints then and for the saints now. And the angels desire to look into these things. They cannot believe the affection shown by God and the sacrifice of His own Son for men that rebelled against God and were lower than them in power and dignity. I have preached this to you a hundred times. That when someone feels sorry for the part of humanity that isn't elect, why don't they feel sorry for the part of the angelic race that is not elect? They're called the elect angels, and they're called the devil and his angels. Why don't they feel sorry for them? I'll tell you why. They couldn't care less about the integrity of God. They couldn't care less about truth. They're sentimental socialists who want everyone saved. Right there. If they cared about the integrity of God, and they cared about truth, they would would want to be fighting for the angels. The fallen angels deserve salvation more than we do, because they're greater in power and glory. The angels desire to look into it. The last reference, Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3, on this same point that the angels... Desire to look into it. They know how much God loves His only begotten Son. Angels are called the sons of God in the Bible. You know, Job chapter 1 starts out with, there was a day when the sons of God appeared and Satan was among them. They're called the sons of God. And that's there just to confuse you a little bit if you don't want to trust the Word of God. When you get to Genesis chapter 6, angels didn't come down and have sex with women. So that there's a a race of half-breeds running around on this planet. There are idiots that believe that. Ephesians 3.10 I want to start at verse 7. We'll close. Brethren, this is Paul. 
talking about the fact that he was given the dispensation of the gospel to preach this fantastic news about the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He says in verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Did it take some power to change Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul? Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent, this is God's goal, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, that is the angels, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The intent of this whole drama, one of the intents, one of the goals, is for the principalities and powers in heaven to realize the manifold wisdom of God by the way He treated the church. Verse 10 is a little confusing, but if you'll read it properly and understand the intent, it's for angels to understand God loved the church. God saved the church. And that those angels and principalities might see the manifold wisdom of God in what He did toward us. He didn't do it toward their race. He did preserve those elect angels from falling and sinning against Him. But He did not make them sons. They are sons of God only because He was their Creator. We are the sons of God because He is our Creator and our Savior and our Possessor and our Adoptive Father. According to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. From eternity, God has purposed in Christ Jesus to save Jews and Gentiles. It was a mystery hidden God until the time of the Apostles And now as the apostles preached, the principalities and powers in heavenly places could see the wisdom of God in the salvation of us. That is His church. Ephesians 3, about 8 through 12. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.